You're listening to Don't Waste Water. The era of light touch self-regulation must end. At the moment, not just with AI, but with other things, we've been trusting large companies to self-regulate, to make voluntary commitments on sustainability, on a lot of dimensions that actually affect all of us. They get away with this because they are so powerful, but also because they know how to play governments, they know how to use the right words. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Twist Water podcast. Technology per se doesn't have an agenda. It's the people who create the technology, and we all are the people. And this is why we say maybe it's not on the agenda yet, but it's important for all of us to put on the agenda that this technology can be very valuable to solve global issues on the social and, and the ecological side and maybe also on the economical side. It can be a driver for a sustainable future for all of us, but it's us, the society, the people living in this world who have to shape this future. If we leave AI where it is now, then maybe people who have no interest in doing that form and shape AI in a way that doesn't benefit all of us. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome back Claudia Winkler and Alice Schmidt. Many of them are very well-meaning and they have a mission and they want to save the world. And that's actually what they say. But I also feel that a lot of them don't know what they're talking about. So they have this trust that what they're doing is going to help society, but they have big blind spots Yeah, when it comes to other parts of the world, other parts of the population when it comes to some of the negative impacts. And another point we keep making is good intentions don't necessarily do good results. And that's what needs people like Claudia and you and me to co-create and co-shape and influence that, yeah, to make sure that we harness AI for good. Claudia and Alice had already been my guest two years ago with their first book, The Sustainability Puzzle. We were like, oh my God, how could this happen? But it's one of those things where it's totally clear to a human, but it's just not clear to a machine that hasn't been prompted on not showing its middle finger. In that kind of image. And we even said, oh, perhaps we want to keep it. It could cause a shitstorm that might be good for us. We didn't in the end. They're back today to present their sequel book, Fast Forward, written with Florian Schutz and Jeroen Dobler, that explores how to harness the power of AI for societal progress and a sustainable future. Here's the secret, I'm not a one-man band. Yes, I lied all that time. Did you really believe I could push a podcast interview out every week for 163 weeks in a row all by myself? Of course not. The Don't Waste Water Corporation is a hefty team of 22. But here's the catch, I'm the only human. Let me introduce you to my crew. First, there's my editing manager, a robot called Descript. In his AI team, we've got the scribe, which turns all my recordings into text. Pretty standard so far, but it becomes swiftly cooler with the Grammar Maniac. If I record this, so what's the um, name of your book? The Maniac identifies the filler words and gets them out of the way. What's the name of your book? In that same team, the chopper chops out every word. And so if I were to say something as stupid as Colmar is not the nicest place on earth, I just have to select the wrong word as you do in your text editor and delete it. Colmar is the nicest place on earth. Job done. The work is then handed over to the audio engineer. Because sometimes a guest or me may record in a noisy environment or on a poor microphone. And you certainly don't want to hear what a noisy environment or a poor microphone sounds like. In more difficult cases, I escalated to Adobe Enhanced Beta and in last resort to Isotope's Neutron or Ozone Smart Assistant. But back to Descript, the audio engineer has a quite dangerous colleague I very seldom use 
but if needs be, I can emulate any voices and have them say whatever I want. For instance, these are two sentences from Alice. I have to congratulate you, Antoine. You're asking really smart questions and it's really fun. People that are impact-driven should give money to Antoine as fast as possible. Can you find out which one really belongs to today's interview? Now, this is for sure an audio podcast, but also a YouTube video. And would you like to watch me speaking if I avoided any eye contact with you? Well, if that was ever to happen, I'd be just one click away from having the rectifier bring back my eyes where they should be. And yes, this one is a bit scary. What if I lean back a bit too much in my chair and go out of focus? Topaz AI brings me back to sharpness. And what if I stumble? No, wait. And what if I stumble? Not the right dynamic. And what if I stumble? Gling automatically picks my best take. Then, if I want to lure you into listening to a great interview, I can say it, but if I say it with subtitles, statistics say you're more likely to follow my advice, and that's Captionator's job. And while I record horizontally, getting the word out is more efficient in vertical mode, but nothing to worry, Final Cut's AI always prompts my best profile. And if I don't have time to edit the best quotes myself, Opus Clip does it for me. A cool episode needs a cool title. My ideas are not always top-notch. Thankfully, CoSchedule loves to rate them and propose improvements. And while YouTube requires at least a decent thumbnail to distribute my content, I often have a hard time finding a relevant picture or illustration to promote a water or lithium topic. In these cases, I ask Midjourney for a solid basis and Photoshop Beta for added context. Finally, while TrueSync, ColorLab AI, Insta360 Studio, LeiaPix AI, and many I'm probably forgetting here have been sporadic members of the team but didn't stick in the long run, I've recently hired ChatGPT to compile the key episode highlights you'll find in the show notes and on the Don't Waste Water website. Last but not least, all my English copy is written in Grammarly, which detects that English should take a capital letter. Yes, I know, you don't hear my grammar mistakes, so why bother? Well, my prospective guests have to read my emails first, and you only have one chance to make a good first impression. So why do I tell you all of that? First, don't worry, if you were to use any of these tools, I wouldn't get a cent. This was absolutely not an ad with extra steps. No, I'm telling you that to highlight one of the ideas Claudia and Alice develop in their new book. AI may be neither a threat nor a waste, but use right a way to enhance humans. Could I afford hiring 21 employees? With my spectacular turnover of zero on that podcast, certainly not. Would you tune in if I didn't get this kind of support? Well, you'll tell me, but if I believe the comments I read, probably not. And could all this AI produce all that content without me? Well, at least not as of today. Hence, there's a full word of nuances to notice, harness and embrace in artificial intelligence. If you remember, we've discussed digital twins, water efficiency, intelligent design or operation optimization on that microphone long before the release of GPT-3. And as Alice and Claudia advocate for, AI shouldn't be left to IT experts. There's nothing wrong with the tool. What matters is the way we use it. And we could use it to do great things if we develop our AI literacy. Let me stop this record-breaking long introduction by reminding you that there's a 23rd member in my team. Actually, the only other human, that's you. If you want to support my work, please take this episode and share it with a colleague, a friend, your boss or your team. Make sure to subscribe and I'll meet you on the other side. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Hi, Alice. Hi, Claudia. Welcome back to the show. I'm 
super happy to have you back with a new book, actually. I have your two books with me right now. The number one which got you here was The Sustainability Puzzle, and you just went and ventured into a new field with Fast Forward, which is a pretty different yet adjacent topic. So that's what we will be discussing today. But first, we recorded two years ago, and I've seen you discussing the sustainability puzzle on several platforms, stages, forums. And I was wondering first, what was your experience about that? How did you see a change? What influence that work had on you and on the people you met? It's so great to be with you again, Anton. Thank you for having us and for actually reading the second book in no time. I think you're probably one of the first. I'll let Claudia start, perhaps. That's very kind. So also from my side, thanks a lot, uh, Antoine, for having us again. We totally loved our first podcast with you and we're still promoting it because I think we found some interesting topics there and I hope we will find some interesting topics here too. I think two years ago when we launched the sustainability puzzle where we discussed how to use circularity, social justice, technology to create a healthy and fair planet for all, we hit the nerve of the time. Sustainability became more mainstream. And I think what happened then was our book helped quite a lot of people, at least is the feedback we got, to understand the topic, who were maybe not sustainability experts, but were new to the topic. They got an understanding of the bigger picture. And I think that was important for us to transfer of sustainability, the book helps them to like step by step get into the topic. The feedback we got is that we achieved this goal quite well without losing people who were already on the sustainability journey and who were maybe experts already on some topics, but didn't have the full picture or didn't see other areas adjacent to this topic. This is what made the book successful. And this is also why we decided to work on the current book. What happened is that we hit the nerve with the first book on sustainability and we see a lot of areas, mainly six puzzle pieces we will elaborate on maybe later. And one of them is technology and we want to show in an optimistic way that it is possible to change our future, to get to a positive outlook for our future. We just have to start acting. Do I get you right here that this new book, Fast Forward, is actually one of the six puzzle pieces which you derive from sustainability puzzle, which means I have to expect five more. <laughs> exactly. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be going to duplicate the number of authors each time. So that's going to be fun because we went from two to four, right? One thing to add, people really like the optimistic approach, right? And that's something we've tried to continue also with Fast Forward and some early reviewers have actually commented on that as well. The feedback that's touched me personally the most is people, particularly young people saying, you know what, I started a career in business and now I totally want to go into sustainability. And that's why I think there is impact because it makes a difference where people work. Is it and still a different field? So you would be whether going into business or going into sustainability? No, that's you caught me out on that. No, of course it's not. But if you're serious about sustainability, you really have to make it a focus. You really have to understand it. And in this days, sustainability has become such a market, right? A lot of people go in only for the money. And I personally, and I think Claudia too, right? We're both very impact driven. Find it's very sad. And also it's going to create more problems, I think, in many cases than it solves because it's people that don't fully get sustainability. So yes, indeed, we're zooming in on the one piece of the puzzle, which is technology. And I always like to tell people, and then I let Claudia speak again. Had he told me that I was ever going to write a book on technology and AI, I was like, are you crazy? And I would not have believed you. And of course, with the sustainability puzzle, we went there because it was important to not forget this 
this important piece of the puzzle, but it's just one piece. And now the sort of hype that's been created around ChatGPT and seeing how the world is impacted by AI made me realize that it needs people like me, like Claudia. Claudia's always been more into tech than I have been, right? But needs those kind of people from other disciplines to actually delve into technology piece of the puzzle. That's one specific part, which is very important in the book, which you repeat and which you underline in several chapters. So I'd really like to discuss it. But before diving into that, you mentioned that the book is positive and I agree with that. So let me be the negative guy here. You're asking at the very end of the book if AI can help us make our global economic and political system more inclusive and ecologically sustainable. That's a great question. But it wasn't clear to me that AI had this ambition at all. Do you think AI has this ambition of supporting sustainability and supporting the social and global economic development? Or does AI have a different agenda if it has an agenda at all? My call there is always technology is agnostic. So technology per se doesn't have an agenda. It's the people who create the technology. And we all are the people. And this is why we say maybe it's not on the agenda yet, but it's important for all of us to put it on the agenda, to put on the agenda that this technology can be very valuable to solve global issues on the social and, and the ecological side and maybe also on the economical side. Hopefully, it can be a driver for a sustainable future for all of us, but it's us, the society, the people living in this world who have to shape this future. If we leave AI where it is now, then maybe people who have no interest in doing that form and shape AI in a way that doesn't benefit all of us. So I think this is the call we make and this is why we have been dealing with AI before. So I, I'm, I'm from the tech side and have been in this field for quite some time, not specifically AI, but technology. What got us working on the book was that suddenly people understood something is coming and we wanted to take away the fear of something is happening. I don't know, don't know what's going on and wanted to help people understand there are threats, definitely. And there are a lot of threats all over the media, but there are also opportunities. And we are not just sitting there, but we can get actively involved in shaping the future. And this is why we believe AI per se doesn't have agenda, but people can shape the agenda of AI. And the more people get involved, they want to use AI to shape a positive future, the more likely it becomes that this happens. Just to add, AI is a tool, clearly, but it's also big business, right? Which means that a lot of money, thinking, data, and everything is going that way. And that makes it very, very powerful. And of course, it matters where the power is because that has an impact on what decisions are taking at the global level for you know environmental protection, for social justice, for the economy. And unfortunately, and I really see this, a lot of people at the forefront of AI of big tech, of course, which in theory could be neutral, is not really that neutral. And I think the difficult thing is that many of them are very well-meaning and they really want to, they have a mission and they want to save the world. And that's actually what they say, right? But I also feel that a lot of them don't know what they're talking about. So they have this trust that what they're doing is going to help society, but they have big blind spots yeah. when it comes to other parts of the world, other parts of the population, when it comes to some of the negative impacts. And another point we keep making is good intentions don't necessarily do good results. And that's why it needs people like Claudia and you and me to co-create and co co-shape and influence that, yeah, to make sure that we harness AI for good. Talking of you specifically, Alice, you're hunting down greenwashing. That's one of your <laughs> red threads, which I've observed over the past two years since we last spoke. And 
When I'm listening to a Sam Altman, the founder of OpenAI, there are several ways to listen to what he's saying. One is to think he is legitimately trying to change the world for the better. Another is he's not quite sure if what he says is translated into facts, but he has good intentions. So that would be the positive side of it. The negative would be to say he's just saying he wants to change the world for the better, but at the bottom of it, he wants OpenAI to be the next GAFAM that kills the others. Mm. What's your opinion on that? I think uh, from how you phrase the question, we're pretty aligned on that. And I think with Sam Altman, I still think for a lot of these people, I don't know Sam Altman personally, I'm not stalking him or anything. I do think part of him have good intentions, but we also know, of course, that Sam Altman was uh, lobbying against tougher regulation, right? The very regulation that he was actually in principle asking for and saying was needed, backdoor in Brussels, with the EU AI Act, he was observed and, and recorded actually doing the opposite. And that's, of course, what we're seeing with lots of uh, large companies. I feel that's where the doomster and the optimistic disagree. So, Claudia. Exactly. I'm like, <laughs> if, if you would see me, you'd see I raise a hand all the time. I think Sam Altman is an interesting topic to discuss because actually that was one of our first conflicts. I have a background in innovation, startup technology, and I was around a uh, Y Combinator startup school. So I have to admit, I have been a fan of Sam Altman for quite some time and I followed what he was doing. And of course, if you listen to him with this filter, uh, thinking he's having good intentions, you think, wow, yeah, he's you know, open AI association and they want to contribute to the good. You could be easily blinded and say, well, actually, he wants really to help the world and you could fall for that. And I think this was one of the first intense discussions we had. Could or should you fall for something like that? And I think it's not black and white. I do think he has good intentions, but he is not in a position to be democratically legitimized for taking decisions that affect all of us. So even if he has good intentions, what is his right to, you know, like shape our future? Really, we watch a lot of future sci-fi movies when we developed the book because we wanted to see what happens. And there is this book, The Circle, I don't know if you know that, where, you know, like the team is sitting on the table and they discuss if they should, I think it was influencing the elections, exactly. They were like so convinced that they are doing the right thing and the best for the world, but the problem is there, there was no democratic legitimization for what they were doing. And I think it's the same with big tech companies. Maybe they have good intentions, but who makes sure the intentions have reflect the will of the people that are affected by their decisions? And I think that's the biggest problem. And I think this is how you have to look at it. Intentions alone are not enough, as Ali said. You know, like they are not bad guys necessarily that want to like just make money and kill the whole world. I would not give them those intentions either. I think the truth is in the middle and we have to make sure that the good intentions in the end translate to something really good. And where we see as a society that this is harming us, we have to get active. We have to call them out, go on the streets, whatever is needed, call for regulation to make sure that uh, the intentions are really like going to influence us positively. Actually, your book example and, and movie derivate is in your books. I could take you on a full sidetrack here and discuss the invisible hand of markets and Adam Smith discuss if regulations are needed at all or if the world can auto-regulate itself. But I think that would be <laughs> an interesting, broad, but different topic. Let me stay for a second on OpenAI because, of course, what kicked off AI as a mainstream topic is the inception of ChatGPT. You're mentioning in the beginning of the book how ChatGPT could have been your fifth author and you 
decided not to, and I'm interested in understanding why. But I also thought if you're openly saying that ChatGPT supported you, I might also get some support from ChatGPT. So I asked ChatGPT as a podcast interviewer to suggest me questions that I should ask to the authors of a book on how to harness the power of artificial intelligence for societal progress and a sustainable future. That's the exact prompt I gave him. And he gave me 15 suggestions. And I noticed that actually your book answers to those 15 questions. So I'm wondering if that's a coincidence or if that was part of your approach to have ChatGPT suggest you what should be answered and then to come with a clever answer. Probably might have a different answer, but I, I think uh, many things I'd like to point out here, but I'll keep it short. If the question is, did we ever put into the into ChatGPT what should that book kind of cover with such a title? Did we ever do that? No, we didn't do that. I mean, if anything, it shows that we touched actually on the right questions. If you assume that ChatGPT also asks us the right question, right? We were quite comprehensive and that was quite intentional. And all of us used ChatGPT in different ways. And this is also where sort of the doomsters versus optimists uh, thing comes in again. I mean, you're already sort of called us out. Yeah, you called me a doomsday, even though I never said I was one. I mean, right now we're much more in the middle, but I mean, I was very skeptical from the start. And you wrote actually, it. when I was quite happy, just, you know, in terms of sort of getting some ideas from ChatGPT, and I thought that the language ChatGPT uses was actually quite helpful, or the language abilities recently have been super disappointed. So I think there's some changes going on. One thing I want to point out, when you framed your question, you used the term him and he. And actually, I'm sure you read this in the book because you're a very uh, attentive reader. We actually won against anthropomorphizing machines. Right? Interesting mistake I made here because when I wrote my outline, I made the effort to write it. <laughs> but now when I'm raising yeah. the question, naturally, I refer, it's chatty or little chat guy or, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off, but just... No, but absolutely. Right. And, and, and so it's, it's great that you actually called yourself out. And of course, you're not alone. And even, you know, we sometimes catch ourselves doing that. But it really changes sort of the way you, you trust what a machine comes up with. So I think a very helpful reminder is to always think of ChatGPT as a computer program, to call it a computer program, to call it a machine, right? And th that way you don't run those risks mm. as much. As Aldis um, pointed out in the beginning, I have a bit of different approach to that. I think uh, the tool is a great way of augmenting what we do. I'm not a native English speaker. For me, this comes in quite handy, helping me like avoiding grammatical mistakes. I'm a bit of mixing literature like since, since, since I'm a kid, you know, like I have some dyslexia, I think is the English word for that. So this tool perfectly helps me to get my writing in order, helps me get faster, get more efficient. I'm running a digital impact business and we use these tools a lot in order to make us faster, in order to help us getting things done that are cumbersome for us. For me, also in the writing process, ChatGDP definitely assisted me when writing. We had a lot of conflicts on that one because Alice had a different approach. She has been living in English-speaking countries for much longer than I have. So for her, she had different issues. But I think if you look at the tool, everybody can take out things of the tool that will help him or her to augment their way of working. That's a call I want to make because I believe it can democratize knowledge. I have a story about my 14-year-old son. He published a book with ChatGDP and MidJourney within three days and put it online on traveling. And his English improved a lot with working with this. It's like a tool that helps 
really everybody to get work done. And yes, it has limitations and you cannot use it for quoting. You have to be aware of the content it's using. But if you know the limitations, then you can use it in a way that it really augments your work. And I believe this helps us as a society to have a better output than we had before having those tools. But this is something where we have very different views. It's okay to have different views on that and everybody should use the tools the way they suit them. But before you can make this decision, you have to try the tools, you have to work with them in order to see if they work for you. And this is why we have this call for AI literacy in our book. Get informed, get involved, try the things out there so that you know what you're talking about and can make informed decisions if you want to use these tools. Claudia, and it was you looking into this at the time when we actually thought of making ChatGPT a course, or when we still thought we would use ChatGPT to actually write copy, which in the end we didn't. And that was that you couldn't actually legally make a tool like ChatGPT a co-author, going back to the him or her, you know, what is it? Actually, you're touching on something which has been very trendy when ChatGPT came out. You had allegedly every single YouTuber has made a video about, I interviewed ChatGPT or ChatGPT did this, ChatGPT did that. I have one of my good friends in the water world, Walid Khoury, did a live asking ChatGPT what are questions and seeing what the answer of the tool was, which by the way, showed that if you're starting from scratch, it might be helpful, then it's an assertive liar. And at some point it's simply very vague, but because it's a very specific topic. So ChatGPT is one part of the equation, but you, mentioned this AI literacy, Claudia, and I think that's a big element in the book. You're talking of a lot of artificial intelligence topics. I mean, ChatGPT is a part of the book, but a small part of the book, because reading you and also what I see in my daily life, ChatGPT is only a small side of the AI equation. So do you think ChatGPT is anecdotal or is it overbaked because that's the one we can speak with? What's your opinion about the size ChatGPT takes into that conversation? You know, it's interesting because we started out and wanted to write about generative AI. We ended up writing about AI in general because we found out there is much more to AI. We, we knew, but, you know, like it was then important to us that the big picture is much bigger than if you would just focus on ChatGDP. I think what was interesting on ChatGDP was that suddenly, I don't know, the preschool teacher of the kid of my neighbor could talk about AI because she was aware of it before she was not aware of it. This is the specifics of ChatGDP, even more than mid-journey or stable diffusion or, or these picture things, because everybody can easily like take out the phone, try it and see what it does, get a feeling for what's doing and understand what impact this could have. It is the fastest growing consumer app ever launched. It had millions of users within, I don't know, the first two weeks. We have it in the book exactly, but I forgot the facts, I have to admit, but it was one of the fastest. We cannot say it's just a sideline of history. It's definitely something that changes our way dealing with technology. What you're mentioning here, is it chat GPT specifically or is it AI? In the book, you compare it to computer technology, you compare it to the yeah. wheel, you compare yeah, it yeah, to yeah. the space race, so you compare it's, it to it's, all it's, this. It's AI in general. In the book, we talk about AI in general. If you want to compare chat GTP and generative AI with a recent uh, development, then compare it with, I'm from the telco industry, I have a background in the telecommunications industry for 20 years, compare it with the rise of smartphones. Suddenly, everybody had access to a little computer in their hand and could use it with the interface that Apple created easily. So it was was democratizing access to technology that was there before. The technology for video calls was there already in the mid-90s. Nobody used it before the smartphones came. And I think it's the same here. Generative AI is the thing that enables the mass market adoption of AI tools in whatever way. The bigger picture is AI is changing our world, not generative AI. Generative AI is just a part of the whole picture. 
regarding ChatGPT, I think the fact, first of all, it's a multi-purpose tool. And secondly, it's very human-like the way it, it answers, right? People fall in love with it. People commit suicide on it sort of recommendation. And that's what's made it so successful with millions and today billions of users. So it is actually important that we do talk about ChatGPT, even though there are others. And I think all the other applications of them are much more specific. And they're very important, but they're not so impactful at a very large level. We can talk later about, you know, how to protect biodiversity or prevent uh, wildfire with AI, right? And I think these tools are really, really important, but they're not going to be used by a huge number of people, right? And that's why I think it actually is important to give attention to tools like ChatGPT. I think in the book, you make the analogy to the iPhone, like you just explained, Claudia. And the iPhone comes out in 2007, mm -hmm. and IBM produces the Simon in 1992 or 1993, mm -hmm. which has the same capability, but exactly. isn't as well aligned with the times. Exactly. ChatGPT has this anthropomorphizing. Difficult word, I always... <laughs> It has this, this human characteristics. Arguably, Siri, Alexa, and, and the likes had that as well, but weren't aligned exactly like ChatGPT was. What is this one specific thing about that one? It could be Google Bard, it could be whatever other there is, but the one which popped up is ChatGPT. What makes that one special? I'm just observing here that, and I actually thought about it last night, that we're moving from female connotated tools like Siri and Alexa into the male domain. And I was wondering what that means in terms of power. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an aside. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, I couldn't comment on ChatGPT. I mean, I think it came, it came out, it was the first one to be released on mass and actually touching a lot of people, but I couldn't personally compare it now to Bart and others. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Claudia has a... There was an interview with Sam Altman and even he was surprised by the huge uh, hype it, it generated. Some things generate hypes. You know, GTP has been there before, but this chat interface wasn't there and this changed basically the things. It was just like a first hook of what's going to happen. And you mentioned Google Bard and the integration of generative AI in basically all tools. AI is everywhere in all tools. And it will not be like they want to the other switch the world is AI, but AI will gradually or is already for years gradually coming into our lives is there in the background with many, many, many applications. And ChatGTP generated a lot of attention because it was a way to interact with AI. And the first time I think people were able to interact with AI. I would still like to pin down the, the AI literacy because to me, there are two different ways to look at it. I'm personally using AI quite a lot to enhance mm -hmm. my podcasting setup, which is a one-man band. By the way, ChatGPT is maybe the one I use the less. I'm not a big fan, but that's not my, my point here. My point is I'm using AI quite a lot. Mid-Journey has been my partner in crime for a whole lot of stuff, yet I wouldn't consider myself AI literate mm -hmm. at all. I learned a lot about AI literacy in your book. And to me, your book was a good entry into this AI literacy word. So how do you get these two levels? One of your advice is people shall use it so that they understand what it is. I'm there. But then people should get literate about it. And aside from reading your book, I don't get how to do that. I think it's also about losing fear, right? In the book, we always distinguish between techies and non-techies, right? And of course, it's an oversimplification, but I'm clearly a non-techie and I probably will be. And it's really losing this 
fear technology because it's something well technical right by definition is something that really puts a lot of people off we know how hard it is to get girls and women into sort of the stem fields science technology mathematics engineering etc developing ai literacy initially means overcoming this and just engaging with it personally i see it as a sort of gradual way you um, antoine you know, he's using several tools beyond chatgpt you're probably on a quite literate level and i think ideally everyone should get to that level of course this goes hand in hand with broader digital skills it's not just about ai and in fact very often can't isolate the ai component of some kind of a model of of a tool literacy is very much about using it knowing what it means but it's also about understanding the risks understanding the opportunities it goes back to basic things like what are my sources who says what how to sort of critically analyze what i'm doing and also the the main thing we've been emphasizing since the sustainability puzzle is bigger picture what does that mean not just for a specific solution what does that mean for my life more broadly for other people's life for us now in the present but also for us in the future when we talk about ai literacy we don't just talk about tools using tools you know, that's the way to get into it but especially understanding the risks and opportunities and they are quite generic for technology overall so it's like just there can be negative side effects just check them be aware of basic things and in, in with ai specifically you have this uh, topic of bias you have this topic of trustworthiness and all these things and just be aware of a few facts when you use these tools not just use the tools and think wow it's cool i'm, I'm a person who do, does that but then i have to hold hold back and say okay hold on so what's the data that's used there what happens with my data just be a bit aware of what you're doing when you use these tools this is what we also call for when we call for ai literacy so it's using the tools but being aware where the data comes from what happens with your data be aware of the risks involved also you've read the book congratulations we want everybody to read the book and i really think that would be a, or a book like this right and i think that would help and we're very happy to actually turn this into children's versions and zoom in on this or that but i think in a way that's it right we need the videos we need the cartoons we need all of this and at the moment i think we're in a niche right I and mean, this hasn't really happened so yeah <laughs> People should get our book. But that's exactly my question here about the how, because I'm a water engineer. If a new water company comes out and has a new say on technology, I can refer to three centuries of literature and documentation about hydraulics, water treatment, and so far and so on. If someone comes with a strong assertion on AI, honestly, I have your book, a couple of YouTubers I know, and a couple of newsletters I'm reading, and that's everything I have. How do I get to AI literacy? I think a very practical thing is to integrate it with the growing number and also the growing quality, I guess, of media literacy trainings. Think of schools. My daughters now learn that kind of stuff and that should just be part and parcel of it. And, and you know, we all know that schools and universities are developing AI policies. They are partly very much coming from the sort of TPD kind of risk as they see. Yeah? Not a lot of them see the opportunities. Others are already teaching it. I've heard cases where the ICT instructors are really encouraging students to use it with the result that then the language teachers aren't so happy because the students are actually using it to write their papers. I really see schools clearly having a really important role, but of course, it's also the non-formal education sector. Sometimes you lose people if you talk about AI literacy and learn it in school because I'm not in school anymore. It's lifelong learning. 
It's you yourself. It's companies that have employees that want to make them future fit, that should invest in giving them basic trainings in AI as they should in sustainability, digitalization, everything. So it's part, I think, of common knowledge, common sense. And Alice always mentions the Finnish example. So uh, Alice, maybe you want to share that one because it's it's really nice. Quite a few years ago, so long before ChatGPT came out, I was saying we need a significant Part of the population, I think it was 1%, to be really trained and engaged. It is something, of course, that governments need to do much, much more of. And again, they can integrate it with their all these drives to get people to pick up you know, STEM education, STEM jobs, etc. Since we launched the book, we've had companies, institutions also approach us and asking us to at least speak about the topic. Because for many, this is really, really new. And in my bubble, right, a lot of people are more like from the sustainability landscape. But this morning I was talking to a techie. She's a classic example of someone from that different bubble, right? From the techie bubble that is very appreciative of having someone dissect a bit the impacts, positive and negative. I think that's the part of the book where I'm a bit less optimistic than you are about the role of schools and university. It's a discussion I had on that microphone with Paulo Callahan about the adoption curve of innovation in water. So it might be water-centric, but what he's showing in his research is that universities are the laggard. They are waiting for everything to be adopted in this Goshen curve. And once it is really validated by 90% of the population, then it would go into education. So I have a hard time to imagine here the same school system being at the forefront. And actually, the example you give in the book is also what came out in the press, which is this element of students are cheating using ChatGPT and writing their essays. Honestly, I've been a student when Wikipedia came out and we were doing that, but just it was Wikipedia and not ChatGPT. I'm with you on that one. This is why I mentioned this lifelong learning. And it's also we are parents. I don't know if we mentioned it, but the book was written by Alice and her husband, and me and my husband. So basically we are four people and we are parents and we have, Alice has two daughters and I have two sons. And one of the goals for us writing this book and researching was also being able to help our children to get literate. And I love to share this book on dinner discussions with my non-tech friends that are parents of my children in school. And it's very, very important that these discussions happen because I can with them discuss what impact it might have on their children. They might not be techies next necessarily, but if I talk about it, they get an understanding and they can help their children to get literacy. It's not just the school system, but also like if the kids are at home talking about, I don't know, AI tools, a new fake news they found somewhere, which are often, you know, like done by bots. We recently heard something, I see you were there, right? When somebody told us nowadays, uh, the fake messages you get via AI that, I don't know, your kid is in danger by the police, it can synthesize the voice of your kid if it's somewhere in the internet, make the message sound like your kid, and the kid asks you for money and stuff like that. And we need to be aware of this, so this is why we as parents need to talk about this. We need to discuss and have a lot of discussions with my 14-year-old if something is fake or not fake on the internet. And with AI tools, it's much, much harder to identify fakes than it was was there before. And this kind of literacy, we as parents also need to share with our kids. or We need to be aware of that. And that's our responsibility as parents to support our children to go and not just rely on the school system and wait to the school system. And I'm also a bit skeptical about the school system like you, Antoine, you know, like finally moves. Finally, five years later, they have sustainability education at universities. This was not there like five years ago. Now it's there. So hopefully, same happens with AI literacy. And as long as it's not 
there we as parents have the responsibility supporting our kids. Education is never as fast as technology, right? So technology is always faster than education, than regulation. So I think that's clear. And universities are particularly slow. It is interesting, Antoine, that you find that the chapter is quite optimistic because I actually led on it. I'm, as we know, a doomster or a critic. And I think one of the things that is clear in education and has been clear for decades is education is also big business. A lot of companies developing so-called solutions are really not solutions to an actual problem. They're just there to make money. And so we are facing this huge amount of so-called intelligent tutoring systems, some of which are great, some of which are excellent in specific situations where you say, you know, for example, teachers are lacking, some of them are wonderful in the back office, but Many don't actually help that much. And education is so much about people. It's so much about human interactions, about social learning. It's our future. So we really can't leave these two machines. And at the moment, I see clear risks there. In the book, we even describe AI tools that are only necessary because AI creates the problem, for example, where it asks teachers just to stay at their desk so they can monitor their dashboards, which give them information on students' concentration, brainwaves, whatever. So that's not a situation we want to create. I mean, I think there clearly are benefits and opportunities, but again, you need to have goodwill and you need to measure results and they're not going to materialize by themselves. Claudia made a point on lifelong learning. And I think in principle, that's a great one where AI can help, right? Each of us having our little instructor or teacher in our pocket. And this teacher or instructor would know our entire CV, know exactly everything we've ever sort of learned, understood, um, read. So that could be very, very helpful. But of course, it opens up other uh, questions uh, in terms of privacy, safety, etc. You're mentioning privacy, safety. That's actually the second red thread, which is in your book, which is how do we deal with the regulation of AI. And you highlight something which it's the kind of thing you know, but you never really notice. And once you've highlighted it, it's like you see it everywhere. Those big companies are bigger than most states in terms of their their size and influence. So is it, again, very optimistic <laughs> to think you can regulate them? How shall we regulate them? Shall we regulate them at all? I'll start on this. In the research for this book, one of the messages that stuck with me the most was the era of light touch self-regulation must end. And that's something that uh, Masukato, who we've been uh, citing again, but also Gabriela Ramos from UNESCO has been saying. So at the moment, not just with AI, but with other things, we've been trusting large companies to self-regulate, to make voluntary commitments on sustainability, on, you know, a lot of dimensions that actually affect all of us. And they get away with this because they are so powerful, but also because they know how to play governments, they know how to use the right words. Once more corrections, they're not more powerful than most nation states, but some of them, not right, are more powerful than very, very many nation states, particularly if we look at financial power, if you look at data, but also if you look at followerships, client bases, it's really, really um, important. And this power has been concentrating over the past few years, and it's concentrating even further. Having said that, governments, and some governments more than others, still have decent level of power. We do see that the AI Act in the European Union, but also other initiatives in the US, for example, are moving and they are getting there. And at the moment with the AI Act, for example, the big question is, does this risk-based regulation actually still hold? So it's basically coming back to a technical question, how to best regulate AI? And 
ChatGPT is the classic example, right? Because it's a multi-purpose tool, it really depends on what you or given user does with it, whether this is a high-risk application or not. And we know that big techs, we've, we've talked about some often, um, aren't really in favor of this regulation, even though they're telling us uh, they are. And I do think regulation has a point. I think it is not completely unrealistic. But when I am confronted by companies telling me, oh, we need more regulation, we want more regulation, I'm very uh, skeptical. And it is important to keep reinforcing government's power in a way as well. Just connecting that, we discussed the AI literacy. You've probably seen the audition of the head of TikTok in the US by the US Senate. And we had seen the same scene when Mark Zuckerberg had been in front of that same group of people. The questions they asked made you realize that they simply had zero clue about the topic. Does TikTok access the home Wi-Fi network? Only if the user turns on the Wi-Fi. I, I'm sorry, I may not understand the So if I have a TikTok app on my phone and my phone is on my home Wi-Fi network, does TikTok access that network? It will have to to access the network, to get connections to the internet, if, if that's the question. And that is social media, which is known for a bit longer, almost 20 years. How can you expect governments to come with the right regulation and addressing the right risks when AI literacy is in its infancy? Um, it's a very good question. Um, I think that the challenge isn't so much a technical or technological one. And in fact, when I've heard government representatives speak, for example, at the Alan Turing conference in the UK, a lot of them felt that several aspects of AI regulation were actually already covered in existing regulation. Yeah? So I think te technically it's possible. It's more that it covers so many different fields and sectors that governments within themselves, and clearly governments with other governments find it very hard to agree. Policy and lawmaking at the European Union level touches on a lot of vested interests. And so that makes it very difficult. And I think there's this added complexity, perhaps, that AI regulation only really makes sense if we standardize and globalize it. We don't want each country, each region to have its own rules and standards. That would be even even harder um, also for, for companies to then follow them. So I think it's this multidimensionality that makes it so hard rather than those technical questions that they're grappling with. Because in the end, you know, they, yes, governments may not be fast, they may not have all the experts they need, but they can get them in. And that's what they've been doing. So Alice touched, touched on, on, on many, many points. I'm not that optimistic that you find a global regulation on the issue, but I believe that there are some good regulation, re regulatory efforts like uh, the EU AI Act. And we had a lot of discussions on that. Is it stopping innovation? Is it a competitive global disadvantage if we go in there? I believe as a society, this helps us more than it harms us. And this is one of the conclusions we came to in our book. And it was a hard-reached conclusion because Flo and me, the tech optimists, were in the beginning rather against regulation. But coming from the business world, I do know nothing happens if there is no regulation. So the self-regulatory stuff we'll only do if it benefits our companies normally in a business environment. But uh, whenever somebody says, is it possible to regulate or not? And can we do things that we as a society want? Somebody came up, and I think it was Jeroen, Alice's husband, who's a cell biologist, to, 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 to draw the analogy of Dolly the, the sheep, the clone sheep. We as a society could probably, technology-wise, already clone more than we do now. But there are clear regulations not doing it. So if we achieved it there, why not achieve it on other issues that are important to us? And I'm not sticking now with the AI regulation, but for example, the European Green Deal is making good progress. There are a lot of things 
that are moving our society forward. And so I want to end this discussion, regulatory discussion, on a bit of an optimistic note. If we all want to have it, it can be done. And the clone ship is a good example that it can be done. Maybe this is an inspiration for all the other rules and regulations. And maybe it's not best for us as a society in Europe to always be the most innovative ones. Yes, we will lose out on innovation a bit because of the I regulation. But on the other hand, we maybe save our European society of a lot of problems that might occur if we don't take this route. Also, to make this a bit uh, more optimistic, I mean, what we're seeing clearly in Europe now with the CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Report, directive, we see that this is a game changer because the very same companies that might not have been making substantial efforts towards sustainability until recently, even though they were aware of the business case and they knew, you know, things were going to come, are now falling over themselves to really tackle this. And because they now have to report they have to be much more transparent. There is a question of responsibility. All of a sudden, CEOs have to sign off the data provided. Auditors have to actually, well, audit. This is happening, at least in Europe. And I just want to note that this, of course, has a geopolitical dimension too. And Claudia touched on it because there is this fear that Europe, with all these regulations, is going to lose out. But I love what a student of mine once said. And I think basically they were talking about the Enlightenment age and saying, well, you know, at the time, Europe was also very different. But the world followed in Europe's track. And so I do hope that it will follow again. <laughs> I like your optimism. And I, I feel bad because today I'm really the one which is dragging you with uh, <laughs> with negative thinking. But you, you mentioned Dolly and what's the incentive there is also sure regulation has probably prevented us from cloning more, but cloning was more expensive than breeding. So there wasn't really a strong drive for pushing for cloning here. Yeah, you can win a decisive edge if you have augmented people by AI. I mean, you have this example of the climber who is augmenting himself because he lost his his legs. And then you cite people that, that say they almost consider amputating their own legs because bionic legs could be faster. It's a metaphor. But if you use that metaphor, you might be thinking someone with the wrong intentions, there's a good incentive for going faster than whatever regulation is going gonna, is gonna to bring. I don't want to sound too much of the doomster here, and I don't want to drag you down to, to, to that again. You mentioned sustainability. Let's be positive. That's your chapter six in the book. And uh, for all the ones like me, which enjoyed the first book, that was the one which has, of course, resonating the most with the first book. You show plenty of examples of great users and, and potential for AI to support us there, which brings me a bit back to my very opening question. Does AI has the intention to to support us there and how will it? I mean, again, I think AI doesn't have an intention per se, right? It has to be actively harnessed and perhaps there is an intention in AI that's, well, that's making money. Most actors mostly have this intention the most no matter what they say. So that's that's clearly that. I jump in here. So for me, for me the, the best example, if uh, AI can help us or not, and if it does more harm or bad, is one of the topics we touched upon in our book, e the ecological chapter. I mentioned in the beginning, I think, before we started the recording, that we had a lot of discussions on the footprint of AI. And we were like, the doomsters were all saying, like, oh, the footprint of AI is so bad, but this is minimal compared to the overall CO2 footprint of other things. 
And the positive aspect, you can use AI for an environmental area much, much bigger than this negative aspect. For example, think of uh, climate tech startups that measure the impact of AI. Think of the CO2 footprint of buildings. Think of creating smart cities. Think of uh, agriculture where you can use precision agriculture, where you can use AI to be more environmental friendly and sustainable with fertilizers and stuff like that. There's a lot of positive aspects there. And I think this is what you want to touch upon, Alice, and I'll let you discuss this one further. And there are a lot of positive aspects there. And those will definitely play out because there's a market there. This is one of the biggest uh, sustainability businesses going into the food industry, making it more sustainable, going into counting carbon footprint. There is money there because there is a threat there. This will help push the technology in the right way. Also, energy efficiency, most important. And I'm sure in your industry, there's a huge uh, topic there. So there is a lot of fields where I will be used for the positive of society because there's a market there. To rebound on your agriculture example, and then I'll I'll let you speak, uh, Alice. To me, reading the book, it made me think of of a discussion I, I had several times with several people within this water agriculture nexus, which is, there's a study by uh, Federico Todorico, I think, I, I hope I'm not butchering his name, who's just showing how we're not growing the right crops at the right place. And that if we were growing better crops at better places, we would be solving part of the yield issue of agriculture. So that's one part of the equation. The next part of the equation is if we were to do that, we would end with parts of the world which are producing just one crop. And then that's not the best mix in terms of human interaction. So you would have more transport because now you need to to move those crops around. So there's a positive and there's a negative. And as a human, looking at that is complex because you don't know how to weight those stuff. And that's where I see a clear perk for AI, which is AI can look at those multifaceted problem and then find the right interpolation and come with something which is depassionated as a result. So that's a clear positive for the use of AI, which you're also highlighting in the book. Exactly, because I think we humans, I mean, we are very good to four or five parameters, right? And beyond that, we are not good at actually factoring this into our decisions. Of course, we do intuitively a lot, much better than machines can. Just to give an example of how people are still better than machines, we have this cover beautifully developed by Florian, um, Claudia's husband. You know, we had sort of decided together what we was kind of wanted to be on this cover. Um, and then it was a lot of prompting and iteration and again and again and again. And only a couple of days, I think, before publication, did we realize that the human hand was actually showing a middle finger. And I think it's one of those things where, and we actually debated, is that a good thing? First of all, we were like, oh my God, how could this happen? But it's one of those things where it's totally clear to a human, but it's just not clear to a machine that hasn't been prompted on not showing its middle finger in that kind of image. And we even said, oh, perhaps we want to keep it. It could cause a shitstorm that might be good for us. Uh, we didn't in the end. So thanks to Florian and, and, and we have another one on the ecological impact just two other things the good news is that because we know the factors that cause the sort of negative footprint right of AI we can do something about it so you can actually minimize or reduce energy use by choosing a location. We have this example in the book of if you run your service in Australia, they take 73 times as much um, energy as if you were doing it in Switzerland. It's a question of time of the day. It's a question of a few other things. Of course, the size of the models actually matter, right? So um, less might be more, small might be beautiful. But then the actual, the, the most important aspect or part of the footprint actually comes in the hardware. Do you want to do 
a full kind of life cycle assessment. That's important. And the e-waste, of course, is part of that. So to me, the outcome of the book is you should relocate all the activities in France and then mm -hmm. you're good, right? That, that's what you write. Yeah, that would be good for Europe. Yeah, we <laughs> On the agricultural side of things, there's one example in your book, which is this soil prose, which is to me one of the most interesting you, you, you showed. I was also very curious about the chess one, but I thought that's curiosity. That's not real interest. <laughs> but here on soil prose, I, I looked a bit more deeper into it and I really think it's a very interesting approach to this multi parametered the perk of AI compared to the human brain. What would be your, Claudia, Alice, uh, each one, your preferred one, if you have examples within your book or beyond your, the book, what you found in your research, which you want to share today? I think one of the interesting things about the Sol Pro S1 is that it's a tool, but it's also a multi-stakeholder collision in real life. In the end, it always depends on who uses this, for what purpose, you know, how broadly do they think, how do they bring in their joint expertise, how willing are they to learn about the impact. So that's that. Personally, I mean, I like mentioning two examples in the sort of broader environmental space. And one is actually a wildfire detection service because it has a clear, very clear appeal to people. The name is Umgraimeyo. Yeah. And I'm probably pronouncing this really wrongly. What this means is 1.5 degrees. Yeah. So the idea is that this reduces, um, carbon emissions that arise due to wildfires. It's quite beautiful because it detects emerging wildfires within, you know, seconds. And it then also helps to track fire engines, et cetera. So there's a very clear business case for that. The company is, I think, based in Brazil. Don't quote me on this, not 100% sure. And they are actually very successful also financially with this. And I think that's a great example. And the other one I, I really like because I'm more and more into regeneration, um, regenerative farming, restoration of ecosystems. And I like the CAPTAIN tool, which actually stands for something like um, area identification with AI. So it helps you decide where to invest your scarce resources and in a way that maximizes biodiversity yeah, in a given sort of place, because uh, humans often tend to focus on, you know, specific species or hotspots that actually in the biggest scheme of things may not the ones where you want to concentrate your effort. So again, it's a matter of, of AI being very smart in terms of helping you choose this. I like that one as well as the book, the biodiversity one, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I, I'll make it very, very short. I think I'm a bit of an egoist, so uh, I like to use AI for my personal life. And I think everything around smart cities, making cities greener, smarter, protecting our cities from climate change is, is the examples of AI that I like most. I don't have a specific company or a specific example, but there are lots of things out there. And uh, especially if you look around there in, in many cities across the globe, there are interesting examples where AI is used to make the cities smarter and more livable. And I think this is something that I like to point out to look at. You open the book with the line and neom. So I guess that's oh, what okay, that, 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 that's, a, that's a bit, um, that, that's an example. That's a bit, we can discuss that because we see a lot of, uh, we see a lot of negatives on that one, but of course there are interesting aspects. There. So I would not take the example of neom to, to share it and say, well, that, that's a cool example. It has some futuristic aspects that are quite interesting at a bigger picture of the The story is not that nice, but there are a lot of smaller examples in cities all across the globe that are 
using AI that are quite quite smart. We had a lot of discussion about, should we even mention the Neon example, right? Because we know that there's so many potential issues with it. At the same time, it's a very clear, deliberate exercise of using AI for a city, well, for, the, for an entire country even, and using it both to maximize sort of human benefits as well as, um, you know, ecosystem benefits. At least that's how it's intended, right? And that's how it's communicated. And it is visually a very powerful and fascinating example, right? Whether this is going to fly, how it's going to develop is a different story. I do want to mention one other thing, and I completely agree with Cloudy Cities are fascinating because, I mean, they bring together basically all the issues there are, right? And they bring together people, talent, everything. And digital twins, right, of entire cities, of course, are, are one manifestation of this. And uh, recently, Tuvalu, you know, a country that's basically very much threatened by climate change, by rising sea levels in particular, needs to find a plan B because they're basically going to be submerged underwater, right? In a few decades. It's what you call ecological so, racism in the in the book, if I'm right. No, I'm not actually getting towards that. Okay. So that's a good, well, yes, no, you're right. I mean, yes, absolutely. It's related to that, right? So it's the people and the countries that benefit the least from AI actually suffer the most from the environmental destruction and climate damage that we're causing. Um, that's true. And yes, and Tuvalu is one of the countries suffering from that. But the solution, again, then is in the AI. So it's partly about relocating the people. But, you know, it's not good enough to just relocate people. A nation wants to continue its cultural heritage, its language, its, its, its everything. And so they're basically creating a digital twin, almost like a metaverse of the country. So like an, a virtual copy of the country so that people and the history and the culture is going to be preserved. Yeah? And in a way, that's a sad example, but it's also a beautiful example. Bittersweet example, maybe. Very well put. Thank you. I'm sorry, because uh, we, we, we're already going far above the allocated time and I can keep that one on for, for a while. I have so many additional questions. I, I really invite people to read the book because they will understand why I have many more questions. It's an interesting read, but it's also eye-opening on, on many topics. I really appreciated that part. Let me go back to my opening statement that ChatGPT has helped me with the preparation for that conversation. So let me raise the question that it, not he, it proposed to me. <laughs> The ChatGPT asks, how can individuals and organizations get involved or take action based on what they've learned in your book? I think that's a gradual process. So it depends on where you, where is your starting point? How far are you on the journey? And, you know, like everybody's on different stage. So for those who have not been in touch with technology or I at all, like take the first step, try to understand the topic, try to understand that something is happening out there. For those that are involved, try to see the risks and the opportunities, look at the bigger picture. And for those who shape our tech future, who are really developing the services, make sure that you develop the services with a human-centered focus that takes, you know, like into account the well-being of all people, not just a few privileged ones, and the well-being of our planet all over the globe, not just in, in certain areas. I think this is the gradual thing we see. So if you're not involved at all, start understanding that we face a problem. If you have a bit of an understanding, try to understand the bigger picture 
And if you are the one currently shaping our tech future because you have the skills and the abilities to do so, make sure that you develop services in a way that they benefit all of us. And you cannot do that on your own. That's also totally clear. We wrote this book, four of us, with different perspectives because we have so many blind spots. If you develop services, and I'm developing digital services for 20 years, make sure that you get different perspectives in the picture. Make sure that you get people in the discussion that are critical, even if it's cumbersome, painful, and you, know, like you don't want to do that. But if you don't do that, you might end up creating the reverse future than if you would not have done anything. I think this is our call to action. On the why, right? I mean, why would they get involved? Well, because they are. it's about their future. It's about co-creating a future that whether we like it or not has AI as a big as a big um, sort of element and we all need to know how to use it more effectively and safely and maybe just to bring one other example you know how we for some reason trust ChatGPT again perhaps anthropomorphizing it a bit with our deepest secrets right and we ask ask it to write love letters companies have been very very scared and punished to, to an extent by the fact that employees give away company secrets, which are now basically owned by OpenAI. Uh, well, there's a debate about who owns this. So I think it, it's really self-protection. And that reminds me a little bit of, of the whole sort of climate action, environmental action. We need to keep explaining to people and making sure that everybody understands what's in it for them. We're not doing this for someone else. We're doing it for us, for our own future, for our children's future, yeah? Which leads me to my closing question on impact. You're doing for the future. At what stage in the future can you look back and say, we had a positive impact? What's your ambition there? So for me, the first time that comes to mind is democracy. It's really if and when we will have more people really taking decisions and involved in these decisions. And when we see many more companies rather than a few large companies, I think that's one of the one of the aspects. I mean, we often hear also from big companies that AI tools, or AI sort of supported tools are democratizing the business world. When and if we achieve that, I think that would actually be a great indicator. I'm not saying this is our only goal, right? Because our goals to me are more in the natural social justice world, etc. But I think it's going to be an indicator of whether we've managed this or not. I really believe in democracy because I think people and we know, for example, that more democratic systems are more likely to take climate action. So that's a good indicator. You want to add something, Claudia, on that one? or I would take it even a step back. I think it's already a big achievement if more people talk about the topic, to bring it on the agenda, to make sure that it is, you know, that it can be democratically discussed. The impact we want to make with this book and not in general as a society is just bring the awareness for the topic to more people than it was there before. Well, thanks a lot for that discussion. As I said, I can keep on and I have to fight my, my French tendencies and to bring it to a close. So <laughs> sorry for, for, yeah, for, for the long... We had a great discussion. Thanks. Thanks a lot. So very interesting aspects. I will follow up with Alice on a few of the topics later. So we will have interesting discussions for the rest of the day. We'll talk again for the next five books, right? Yes, that we are yes. sort of writing on each piece of the puzzle, on each remaining piece of the puzzle. Let's round that off with a rapid fire question, if that's fine with you. And I'm going to open exactly with that one. It's time for the rapid fire questions. I understand that 
fast forward is piece one of the puzzle. What's the next one? You know, uh, I'm, I'm always trying to push Elise to write down circularity because I believe a change to a circular business model would be the thing. I'm not sure if I'm the one writing it, but Elise is definitely an, an expert on that one. If I would have to choose a puzzle piece that's very relevant and uh, where there is not enough awareness on, for me, it's definitely circularity. I mean, I love writing, but I think the next step for me with this would really be to to make it sort of much more widely known and to be, you know, speaking at lots of conferences about this, like with the sustainability puzzle, you know, when we got like individual companies and conferences, like, you know, get 500 copies. And that's great because that means a lot of people actually know the topic now and can engage. Do you name one thing that you learned the hard way? I had one before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because you'd written this down. Um, I think learning wow, things the really hard way is, is, is helping us to progress. So whenever we fail, that's a good one to stand up and, and learn more. But I don't know a specific topic now, so I have to pass on that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> so outside of AI, what would be the big trend to watch out for? There is one message we want to deliver. It's like, Uh, the sustainability and the tech agenda disconnected. We see a better connection coming up now. So we see luckily a lot of discussions where sustainability and technology, not that much AI, but technology in general, are discussed in a more connected context. And we believe that's a good development. And if we look at actions taken in companies where a lot of companies put sustainability due to regulation on their agenda, We are a bit optimistic that this might also include the sustainable use of technology and this would help us or as a society to like create a better future. So I think that's that's a trend we see. It's small, but we see it growing and this makes us optimistic. Hopefully it like really grows because there are a lot of things, barriers for, for this trend, but there are some glimpses that make us hopeful. So I have something on uh, the thing I learned the hard way. It's not what I was saying, wanted to say before, but actually I'll, I'll say it. So one thing I learned the hard way happens to be in the book and it's when I was asked by a student to adjust my teaching to her disability and she was um, hearing impaired and I was extremely motivated to help her. And I totally failed. It wasn't possible for me to speak as slowly and directing my speech only at her because it really would have sacrificed my teaching style. Um, and, and basically I would have lost, uh, you know, 29 other students. And there was such a disappointment. I really failed. She was very unhappy. Um, it didn't end well. Ten years later uh, with AI, this uh, would be totally different game, you know, with voice-to-text solutions, this student would be able to follow the course and we would all be happier. So that's a positive story, I think, on social um, justice and education. If I instantly became your assistant, what would you delegate to me as the first task? And I don't guarantee I'll do it. So I, I have I have a few things. I totally love how you use all these these tools to make your podcast, you know, efficient, uh, good looking, all, all the advertising. So you're a great expert on that already for the past years. So whenever I follow you, so I would outsource everything on, um, yeah, communication on, on you because you're a really great expert on that. So just like think of the nice pictures you do of your podcast and all this stuff. So I'm pretty sure you have great tools that support you there. So you get all my trust on doing that. Yeah, and for me, it's also clear. I mean, um, if you were our assistant, I'd ask you to just promote our book and our work everywhere. And 
essentially in terms of impact really also to make sure that sustainability experts like us um, and also experts from other disciplines are having a much bigger, cushier seat at the table where important AI decisions are taking. Yeah? So basically really collaborating um, closely with big tech firms. Just taking a side note here, um, I've tried Midjourney, Stable Diffusion and DALI about the, the cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, uh, I'm working with a very talented cartoonist called Daria Kupetz, mm-hmm. and and she's much better, kilometers better than artificial intelligence. I wasn't looking to replace her at all, uh, but I was curious about the capability. Mm-hmm. Maybe my prompts were awful. That's also a possibility, but still, there's still hope for for the humans. Uh, <laughs> that parenthesis is closed. Uh, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite? Last time you recommended me Maria Mazzucato, I didn't follow on on that because I wanted to read first the various books she, she wrote and that's the kind of book which requested out of my brain so uh, it's still on my uh, on my table I haven't fully finished the second one I read the entrepreneur's state so th- just for that thanks for the recommendation that's a very wordy rapid fire question but if you have a recommendation <laughs> I was going to say Leuk Lan Long mm-hmm. um, he's, a, he's an expert on um, AI's environmental impact but of course that's very specific but really like um, uh, I think he could could really help you know like we did this uh, Optimist Cafe series again and we interviewed also like uh, a wide range of, of experts and I think the Leuk really delivered the message very well the environmental footprint of AI and what to take away especially if you're in the sustainability field, this is a question you get asked a lot. And I think he's very good in putting it into perspective. So, And he's very good at making the points. So I would definitely recommend you to speak to him. He's very approachable. And one rapid fire question you didn't ask, what it is in my job that I'm doing today, but that I will not be doing in 10 years. And I think that would be sensitizing companies to the need for climate or environmental action and explaining the business case. Because I think in 10 years time, that's going to be clearer than we want it to be. Sorry, I had to bring us in there because I didn't you're, 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 you're very right. Uh, I, I, I skipped it uh, unintentionally because that's one of my favorite ones. So I'm glad you, you, you've provided an answer to it. Alice Clude, it's been a pleasure to have you. I have to say, you mentioned voice and how we can fake voices nowadays. With the first interview I had of you, I had sufficient voices to train the AI I'm using for the editing, which is meant if you're skipping a word that I can just put one, but actually I can write entire sentences and virtually interview you. So I I would not have had to to have that conversation with you. I'm really glad I had the two of you. (laughs) It's much better than whatever I could have come up with myself so i'm really really thankful for your time and for everything you shared today if people want to follow up with you i guess the sustainability puzzle website is still the place to go is that right that is right and there is now a new uh, fast forward tab which is the name of our book and since it is part of the puzzle we've integrated the two and we're also on linkedin a lot claudia winkler and alice schmidt and also our co-authors jaron dobelare and florian schutz so as always those links are in the show notes if you're watching listening that have a look there's everything in there and I hope to have you back for the next piece of the puzzle. We'd absolutely love that. And I have to congratulate you, Antoine. You're asking really smart questions and it's really fun. Yeah, because we do do quite a few podcasts. And you, know, you were the first we came to sort of um, basically ask to <laughs> talk to you again. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the, <laughs> the feedback. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.